0: Well, hello. Well, can I just say that while it's a huge honor for me to be able to speak, it's made better with every single one of you here tonight. Because the last time I spoke, it was back when we were in lockdown, and it was just me and the camera at the back and a handful of people in the room. But now that you guys are here, boy, is it so much better. My name is Boaz, and today we continue our series in the book of Romans. But to begin, let me pose this question to you. Did you know that your relationship with your dentist is much like your relationship with God? I mean, think about it. Like, for some of us, we meet with our dentist on a regular basis. Well, for others, you know, seeing the dentist is a -a once-in-a-blue-moon encounter. Maybe some of you enjoy seeing the dentist so much that you sort of have a spring in your step whenever you go to see him. For the rest of us, seeing the dentist can be a bit of a drag. When I was a kid in Singapore, I really disliked seeing the dentist because back then, I'm not sure if they practice this now, but back then, they would extract your baby teeth if they knew that your adult teeth were emerging. That way you save on having to get braces and all that. Well, unfortunately, I had this problem. So every time I went to see the dentist, he would tell me, oh, I'm sorry, Boaz, we're going to have to extract that tooth, that tooth, and that other one over there as well. You can imagine, as a, as a little kid, going into the dentist, how traumatizing this was. And it went on for years after year. But another reason why our relationship with our dentist It's much like our relationship with God. It's in that we have to trust them. I mean, if this is a dentist chair, how vulnerable is it to to sit on that chair, you know, with leaning back with your mouth wide open? But that allows them to be able to clean your teeth, to be able to identify issues and correct any areas of decay. We have to trust them that with their knowledge and their skill, that they will do what they know is best. The flip side is, if you don't trust them, if you crack open only the smallest mouth for them to access, or, or keep it closed altogether, there's not much that the dentist can do to help you. The same is true with God. If we allow God to, to do things in our life, if we trust Him, if we believe that, that God in His infinite knowledge and power will do what He says He will do, He'll do things in our lives that we cannot do on our own. But if we don't trust God, if we hold back and and resist Him, God is not going to force His way into our lives. But we're a lot worse off for it. Paul, he talks about the significance of, of trusting God and having faith in God in Romans 4. And he draws on the example that Abraham set where he trusted and believed that, that God would do what he said he would do. Uh, it was back in Genesis 12, if you remember, when God promised Abraham that through him would come a great nation. But the problem was, Abraham and his wife Sarah were getting old, and they were still without a child. But as God reveals to Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky, Abraham believed God. He put his trust in him, that God would do what he said he would do. And we see this, this is why Paul writes in Romans 4:3, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now there's a lot that we can draw from this verse alone, but what I wanna point out here is how Abraham uses, sorry, how Paul uses Abraham as an example for us to show that we are to believe in God just as how Abraham did. We see this at the end of Romans 4 as Paul concludes, the words it was credited to him were not written for him alone, not written for Abraham alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. In other words, just as Abraham believed God, just as he had placed his faith and his trust in God, so too are we to believe in God, to have faith in him, to believe in God, the one who sent his son, Jesus, to pay for for our sins and our wrongs. Now that's all well and good. Like, you know, Abraham believed God, so like we're supposed to believe in God and all that. That's all well and good. But what does it mean to believe in God? I mean, what does it really mean to have faith in God? Is it simply believing that God exists somewhere out there? Does it mean that because I read in the Bible that Jesus came all those years ago and that I believe that that happened and I believe that the word of God is true, that that is believing in God? Is is that what it means to have faith in God? (laughs) Some of you are probably thinking, Isn't it? Isn't that what it means to believe in God? Well, yes, it it does mean that. It it does mean that we believe that God is everything that He revealed Himself um, to be in the Bible. It it does mean that. It does mean that we believe that because we read in the Bible that Jesus came, God in the flesh, to die for our sins as a man, that that's all true. Yes, that is what it means to believe in God. But is it possible? that believing in God is more than just accepting that the Bible is reliable and true? Is it possible that more than just mere facts that any non-Christian can believe is true, that faith is meant to change me somehow? Well, great question, because today we're gonna explore the pages of scripture to see what does it mean to have faith in God? And of course, there's a lot of different aspects as to what it means to have faith in God. But in the time that we have, let's just have a look at three. Three different things of what it means to have faith in God. And to help us make sense of these points, I've mirrored these points to our experience at the dentist. So for example, the first point we can make is that like sitting on a dentist chair, faith in God means we are personally invested. That's because unless we put our whole self onto that chair, it's difficult for the dentist to do their best work. I mean, it's probably not impossible. They could probably sedate you and work on you on the floor, but let's not go there. In Matthew and Luke, there's a story of a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. And in Luke chapter 8, it tells us that in all this time, no one could heal her. But as Jesus comes along... This this woman believes that as long as she touches the edge of Jesus' cloak, she will be healed. And so despite the large crowd that surrounded Jesus and pressed up against Him, this woman's desperation drives her to push and force her way towards Jesus with everything that she has. You can imagine that. Imagine the large crowd, she probably had to squeeze through a a few tiny gaps, maybe bump a a few arms along the way, push a couple of hips just to squeeze through the tiniest gap to touch the edge of Jesus' cloak. It wouldn't have been easy. But this woman's desperation and her determination to get to Jesus with everything that she had, believing that Jesus had the power and the authority to bring her healing, saw her healed. But look at Jesus' response. In Matthew chapter nine, so good, check this out. Jesus turned to her and saw her, and he said, "'Take heart, daughter, your faith has healed you.'" And the woman was healed at that moment. Note that Jesus said, your faith has healed you. He didn't say your knowledge of me has brought you healing. He didn't say your incredible understanding of Israel's history has healed you. He didn't even say that your, because of your weekly attendance at your local synagogue, or because of your long family history of being Yahweh followers, that brought you healing. No, He said, It was your trust in me that healed you. It was your belief that I was all you needed, which drove you to push through the crowd with everything that you had that brought you healing. It was your faith in me that pleased God to heal you. And that's why the writer of Hebrews tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Depending on how invested you are in something determines how desperate you are to go all out for it. Maybe you have had a phone that decided to call it a day. It's done. It's seen better days. And you're strapped for cash. You don't have much money. You probably know what I mean. And because living today without a phone means certain death, you do everything that you can to get yourself another phone. Maybe you put in extra hours at work. Um, If you're looking for a second-hand phone, maybe you're looking online every day, maybe even every hour. And if you're bidding in an auction on eBay, you make sure you're right there at the end so that you're the highest bidder. Because how much you want something determines how desperate you are to pursue it. And can I be real with you for a second? For some of us, coming to church and believing in Jesus has just become a thing that we do or say. Like We've just gotten so used to just saying the right things and attending church gatherings and all that. But if we're really honest with ourselves, like really honest, whether or not Jesus actually lived or died doesn't significantly change the way that you live your life. Can you imagine how different churches would be if every Christian and every believer was as desperate for Jesus as this bleeding woman was? Like how much more vibrant would our worship be? How much warmer would the hurting and the the lonely feel as they step through these doors? How much more could God do through you? Take Jesus away from your life. How desperate would you be to get Him back? Because like sitting on the dentist chair, having faith in God means you are personally invested. And secondly, like opening wide for the dentist, having faith in God means You are submissively obedient. If you sat on the dentist's chair and all you did was not only the opposite of what they told you to do, but actually told them what to do, I think the dentist would probably ask you to get out. (laughs) Being submissively obedient here means that we recognize who's the dentist and who's not. Or in this case, having faith in God means that we recognize that He is God. And that we are not. The Bible is filled with stories of people who had faith in God. And in fact, in Hebrews 11, it's, it's filled with people who, who had incredible faith in Him. And as a result of their obedience, they saw God do some pretty miraculous things through them. Take, for example, Noah. Remember, He built an ark and He saved His family and a whole bunch of animals. <laughs> Moses. He obeyed God in and out of Egypt and experienced some miraculous things that God did through him. And by faith, the walls of Jericho fell. And of course, we have Abraham who obeyed God. By faith, Abraham obeyed God when he left his hometown to go somewhere completely unknown to him. Abraham trusted God to do the impossible at an old age, to have a baby. And he demonstrated his faith in God when God tested him to sacrifice Isaac, his son. So it's no surprise that that Abraham's faith pleased God, so much so that it was credited to him as righteousness. But that's not to say that, no, having faith in God is a walk in the park. In fact, every person in the Bible who had that that faith in God, who took that step out of faith, didn't know what was going to happen next. Noah he didn't know if he was going to be permanently labelled the, the neighbourhood lunatic for building this gigantic cruise ship in the middle of the desert. Moses, he wasn't sure how the Israelites were going to be freed from Pharaoh's grip. And, and who builds a massive wall? i oh, sorry, who walks around a massive wall again and again in hopes that it will fall? Trusting in God can be the craziest thing to do at times. But ironically... Trusting in God is also the safest thing to do. It's like when you have a tumor that needs to be removed. It's crazy to think that someone needs to cut you open to get that tumor out. I mean, it's it's crazy, isn't it? But it's the safest way to keep you alive and well. (laughs) Because leaving that tumor in there, it's it's not only dangerous, it's it's life-threatening. But in the hands of a skilled surgeon with someone who is knowledgeable and and, and skillful, with what seems crazy and scary, is ultimately the safest place to be. In God's hands, the safest place to be is sometimes in in the craziest things He asks you to do. Like to take the initiative to mend a relationship or to call off a relationship or to give half your savings away, or to invite that new person at church out for a meal or, or over to your home for coffee. It's, it's, it's difficult. I get it. It's, it's, it's not one of the easiest things to do. It's, in fact, it's, it's crazy when you think of it. Like, I mean, is it going to be awkward? Is it going to be uncomfortable? Like, how am I going to save up to pay for my wedding? And, and will I have time to do everything that I, I need to do? Quite frankly, I don't know. But if he's tugging on your heart to do something that seems crazy, why don't you trust him and let him show you? Because, like opening wide for the dentist, faith in God means you are submissively obedient. And thirdly, like remaining seated on the dentist's chair, faith in God means we are resolutely committed. Imagine halfway through on the dentist's chair. You stand up and you walk out. And after five minutes of, after Googling on your phone for a second opinion, you decide that you're gonna sit back down again. But only to stand up two minutes later to walk out once more. If I were your dentist, I would probably lock that door and not let you back in. Just as well, I'm not your dentist, right? (laughs) Like remaining seated on the dentist chair, faith in God means we are resolutely committed. But what does it mean to be resolutely committed? There's a story in Matthew that you probably know of. It's the one where Peter steps out from the boat and walks on water towards Jesus. And as the disciples see Jesus walking on water, Peter says to Jesus in Matthew 14, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. Then Peter got down out of the boat and walked on water like you normally do and came to us, Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. And he said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Jesus reveals that Peter's little faith comes as a result of his doubt. Directly translated, this Greek word for doubt here is literally two drips. Or in other words, to be divided into two or to be of two minds, But it's interesting because this Greek word for doubt here is only used one other time in the Bible. And that's in Matthew 28, 17. Now, some of you are thinking, but weren't there other times doubt was used in the Bible? Yeah, they were, but they were from other Greek words. But that's for another day. For now, let's just check out Matthew 28, 17. It's when Jesus rose from the dead and now he appears to the disciples. And so it reads, when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some... Doubted. Remember Peter. Peter's just experienced the supernatural hand of God walking on water. But then he saw the strength of the wind and then doubted. Here we have the disciples. They just witnessed the super hand, supernatural hand of God, the risen Savior. But they couldn't accept the possibility that a human can be raised from the dead and so they doubted two impossible supernatural experiences that should not happen in the natural world but they did these disciples they witnessed it peter he experienced it and so even though they had two firsthand encounters of god's supernatural hand in their lives they couldn't accept that that should happen. That, that shouldn't be possible. It makes you doubt that God can do the impossible. That's what doubt here means. The reason why we have little faith is because we doubt that God can do the impossible in the world that we live in, even though we've already experienced that. it's like when my son and I went to the swimming pool the other day. I tried to coax him into jumping into my arms at the pool. You know, as all dads do. <laughs> and even though he knows that I can catch him and carry him from all the times we played together, there's this natural fear and instinct in him that says, no, 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 the, 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 the water's scary. Daddy won't be able to catch me. I'll just go back to the shallow end. And so he doubted my promise that I would catch him even though we've done it many times before. And sadly, he walked away in disobedience. I wonder if there's any of us who has experienced something like that before, where you've seen someone's life completely transformed because of Christ, or how you were saved from certain injury, or worse, death, or how doors opened up that you didn't even knock on. Like you've either witnessed or experienced God's supernatural hand in your life or someone else's life, and you know it was real. But then God prompts you to do something that just seems so illogical and risky and scary. Like how you're struggling to pay the bills and your expenses, but God has put it in your heart to put him first by setting a portion of your income as a tithe. Or how God prompts you to pray for a colleague who's been difficult to be around. And by pray, you know that he means face to face. Or despite what your friends and family might think, that the Jesus that you heard all about, the one who loves you so much, is knocking on the door of your heart so that you can accept him as your Lord and Savior. No one said that having faith in God is easy. In fact, it's one of the most unnatural things to do in this world. (laughs) But in the hands of the one who has shown himself so real to you before, what do you really have to lose? You know, having faith in God is admittedly one of the most difficult things to do in life. And to, to trust in a God who just seems to demand the world of you. And I understand that it can be challenging, you know, to, to, to try to do everything that faith is meant to be. But rather than trying to force it to be what it should be, let me suggest two simple things where we can start. If, if you're struggling in your faith in God and you're, you're trying so hard to get it right, let's start with two simple things where we can have faith in God, the first thing we can do is that you need to admit that you don't know everything and never will. We know if we say that we have faith in God, that we're supposed to, to, to trust Him. But sometimes we don't give God everything that we have because, well, for a host of reasons. We might question whether God realizes or or understands what we're struggling with. It it, it gets lonely at times, especially at night. The pressures at work and and at home, it's it's difficult. And it'd be a whole lot easier to have faith in God if I can just hear Him. Or sometimes we struggle with trusting God because we need to know every single detail of how God is going to see us through. Or to be assured of the outcome. Or how at times, you know, we we question whether God does the right thing or not. Like, I mean, how could he allow that to happen? And what what good is going to come out from that? And I'm supposed to trust God? Look at what Isaiah writes. In chapter 45, he says, Woe to him who strives or quarrels with the one who formed him. A pot Among other parts, does the clay say to the one who forms it, what are you making? Like your work has no handles. Look at God's response. Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? In other words, what do you know? As a common clay pot, do you know more than the, than, the, than the potter? A lump of clay is as limited as the, the ham and cheese toasty that you might have on a Saturday afternoon. Like, what place does that toasty have in, in deciding if you build or rent a house? Like, does it have a say in whether you choose to have children or not? <laughs> Obviously not. But in much the same way, God is making the same point with these clay pots, who would argue with the maker. We are as limited as these clay pots. We're so finite and imperfect in our understanding. But look at what God declares in the next verse. He says, I made the earth and created man on it, It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. We don't know everything, and we'll never know everything, but that's okay, because what you do know and what you have seen is enough for you to trust in the one who does know everything. So let God be God as you trust him and admit that you don't know everything and never will. And secondly, adore the one who does know everything and always will. You know the wonder of not knowing everything? Is that it's not your problem to know everything? (laughs) But the one who does know it all, The one who made the earth and created man, the ones whose hands stretched out the heavens and and commanded all their hosts, he does know everything. Like Isaiah in chapter 40 reads, whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? God already has knowledge of all things. The things you're going through, he already knows. There's nothing that you're going through that he hasn't already seen. There's nothing in your, in your life that he doesn't understand. But even as the powerful God of all creation, he also loves you deeply more than anyone else in your life. Otherwise, why did he send his son as a ransom for you? He did it because he loves you more than you can possibly imagine. Paul tells us in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrates his love for us when he sent his son to die for us, even though we were still sinners. Church, he loves you. He cares for you. So adore him. Adore him, church. Let him be the reason that you do all these, these crazy things because he loves you. Much like when you fall in love with someone, you do things that you wouldn't normally do, right? <laughs> like I remember when Sue and I, when we were first getting to know one another, we'll do everything that we can to be together. Even when she went away on a trip with some of her friends, like we would chat late into the night and, and you no know, Suen not wanting to disturb other people. I remember, remember she took her laptop and went into the kitchen, opened the kitchen sink, cupboards, and slipped the laptop underneath, just so that we could chat later into the night. (laughs) That's the sort of crazy thing your love interest does that shows you that she's worth marrying. (laughs) I'm just saying, all right? (laughs) I'm just saying. (laughs) Adore the one who loves you by doing crazy things to please them. Because without faith, without trusting God, without obeying God, it is impossible to please Him. Today, as we close, I know there are some of you who are ready to live a life of faith. But at the same time, I know there are some of you who will, who will do battle with this, wrestling and, and, and learning what it means to truly trust in God. And I pray that with God's loving hand, that we will all come to learn to trust in Him. But I just wanna encourage everyone with what Jesus says in, in Luke 18. In a world where there's great injustice around us, Jesus promises us in verse eight, that I promise you that God will see to it, that His chosen ones get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, when Jesus comes again, and don't miss this church, will he find faith on the earth? In other words, Jesus is saying, will I find anyone who will live the life for me? Will there be anyone on earth who will respond to my call? If Jesus returned right now, what will he find in you? we don't know when our days on this earth are up. But one thing that we do know is that one day this life will come to an end and we will stand before our maker. But I pray that the faith that he finds in you will be pleasing to him because you adored him to live your life entirely for him. So Father, we pray that right now in this place, with every head bowed and every eye closed, Lord God, Father, we make it our prayer tonight that we will, lose, we will choose to live a life of faith because we are personally invested, because we are submissively obedient and that we are resolutely committed. Because Lord God, we don't know everything and we'll never know everything. But Father, you know it all. And we praise you that you know it all. And Lord God, won't you just help us to live a life that, that, that pleases You, live a life that adores You by doing crazy things, Lord God. Because Lord, this life is not for us. This life is entirely for You. So we thank You, Lord God. We praise You. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.